So I've been thinking about how we would start an episode about Airplane mm. because there's always a thing where we could just talk and riff amongst ourselves and try and find something. But I mean, if we wanted to quote something from Airplane, that'd be an entirely different thing altogether. It'd be an entirely, an entirely different, different kind different of thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you phrased All it together. weird, AJ, and you've never you've never followed my cue when I've tried to lead this, so I'm not going to give it to you this time. Got this him. is vengeance. This is bitterness. This is anger. I'm showing the ugliest part of myself today, AJ, just for you, just for our guests, just for our listeners. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. Don't call me Shirley. Hey. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the Worst of All Possible Worlds, the first and only podcast that calls you Shirley. I'm the Worst of All Possible AJs. I'm the Worst of All Possible Brian's. And I'm the Worst of All Possible Josh's. And we are so excited today to be joined by a very special guest. Uh, she is a longtime transportation journalist, a founder and editor of the Transportation Communication Newsletter, and host of two, count them, two transportation podcasts. <laughs> but... You might know her best as the announcement voice of the IRT, uh, numbered New York City subway lines. Please welcome to the show, Bernie Wagonblast. Oh, thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, Bernie, I, I just <laughs> need to tell you that we've had a Pulitzer Prize winner on this podcast. We have had uh, people at the top of their fields in video games, in art analysis, in filmmaking. And my partner has received the news of all of them coming on the show with, you know, somewhat excitement. But when I told them that you were coming on the show, they like leapt forward and said, the voice of my childhood. <laughs> we are truly so honored to have you here. Wonderful to be here. It makes me feel old when somebody says I'm the voice of their childhood. <laughs> their whole life. It's of their whole life. They've, they've been a lifelong New Yorker. It's OK. I'd love to hear from you just a little bit before we sort of get started on today's topic. Just, yeah, tell us a bit of your story. Radio was something I knew I wanted to do from about fifth grade. Mm -hmm. So I would, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a news person. So I would go down in my basement. I would just read the newspaper out loud to practice reading. So oh, that was wow. kind of the oh. very beginnings of it was practicing reading the newspaper out loud. And I went to school, Seton Hall University, because they had a wonderful radio station. Because radio is one of those things you can't learn in a classroom. You can learn history and policy, but to do radio, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. So that was a great place to, to do it. And mm. I had some fantastic experiences when I was a student there. While I was a student, started working professionally, first you know, covering city council meetings and board of education meetings, then becoming a newscaster. The big break for me was about a year after I graduated, this company called Shadow Traffic came to New York. They had started in Philly, hmm. were in Chicago, but they came to New York, which obviously is the biggest market in the country. Hmm. And the idea behind Shadow Traffic was they would provide traffic reports to virtually every radio station in the city and in the surrounding suburbs. Oh, wow. And they hired about seven of us to be their original announcers. I was one of those seven. I couldn't ask for something better. I was on in drive time, which is the most listened to part of the radio broadcast day, morning and afternoon drive time on two of the biggest radio stations in New York, 1010 Winds, which was and is an all news station, and WABC, which was still a music station back mm. then. And it 
was a great experience. I did that for about five years. I figured I'd done just about everything I could do as far as traffic reporting. I wanted to spread my wings a little. And what I wanted to do at that point was I wanted to own my own small town radio station where oh. I could really serve the community, you know, be a member of the Kiwanis and the Rotary and the Chamber <laughs> of Commerce and all those things. But I knew if I was going to do that, there was one big area that I had a, a hole in my resume and my experience, and that was the sales side because you know you can serve the community, but if you can't sell ads, you're not going to be staying in business for very long. Trust us, we know. We've had to take some really weird advertisers to keep this podcast running. <laughs> well, I, I started that, and what I learned was I am not a salesperson. That is mm. what I learned. Not I didn't learn how to sell. I learned I am not a salesperson. So I was looking around for something because this was obviously not going to be a, a long-term solution. And my old boss from Shadow Traffic had been hired by the New York City Department of Transportation to start up their communications center in Long Island City. Okay. And he hired me to be one of the people to work with him. So I went over there. That was sort of my first experience working in the public sector. I shortly thereafter joined the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Mm. They had an organization wow. called Transcom, sort of a, a little bit of a preview of what my life would be when you consider <laughs> the name of the, <laughs> the organization. But it was, a, again, a great opportunity because we were working with all of the transportation agencies in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Mm. Wow. And that was how I started to get to know some of the people from the MTA. Fast forward to 2009, over a decade after I had left the Port Authority, one of the people from the MTA who I knew when I worked at Transcom was involved with this project called Countdown Clocks that they were going to start deploying. He reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in being the voice for this? Okay. And I said, sure. Sounds like fun. So recorded that. And that was sort of the introduction. The other side, the other hat of being a transportation journalist was we go back to 1996. I remember when I was a student in college thinking, wow, it really would have been cool to have been involved with television when it was first starting up in the 1950s yeah, or radio sure. back in the 1930s. Yeah, but, get it on the ground floor, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, while it's still being created. But I figured there never would be a new medium being created in my <laughs> lifetime. Mm -hmm. So in the 1990s, mid-1990s, AOL came along, dial up. So that was, I figured, oh, this is my opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a new medium. Yeah. And I created a newsletter called the Transportation Communications Newsletter that I'm still doing. I'm proud to say it was in place before Google was created. So yes. wow. <laughs> well, it was Hell it, yeah. Was it starting like posting on Usenet and stuff like that? I think it was a thing called Make Groups was, was the site that I had used, but okay. it basically went out via email. Yeah. After I did that for a few years, other people saw what I was doing and said, hey, would you like to do a similar transportation newsletter for us, obviously directed to a somewhat different audience each time. And now mm. I do about seven different newsletters. Mm. I do, as you mentioned, a couple of podcasts about transportation. Mm. So that's how I got involved with the, the transportation journalism side. Awesome. Uh, and, yeah. and of course, you mentioned uh, a moment ago that uh, Transcom was a, a preview of coming attractions. Uh, I think <laughs> we're in the biz call that foreshadowing. <laughs> I think last year that you came out as a trans woman, is that right? Yeah, it was January 1st, 2023 that I started publicly living and I had sent 
you know, I'd obviously told family mm. and close friends before that, but I posted on social media a few days before January 1st, letting everybody else know. So it's been a little over a year. Well, oh, Bernie, what, what an inspiration to everyone to follow through on their New Year's resolutions. You know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> you, you, you started that year off, right? <laughs> when I make a New Year's resolution, I make a New Year's resolution. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we have a lot of trans listeners. Wow. So I guess I'm just kind of curious to hear if you're willing to talk about a little, a little bit what that has looked like and felt like for you, as well as just if you have anything that you'd like people to hear or know about what your experience has been like so far. Sure. Well, I've known I was trans from my earliest memory. So this was not some new revelation that just came up in 2022. And I said, oh, I think I'll transition in 2023. It's something that I always knew. But growing up in the 1960s and the 1970s, I just did not see any viable way that I could do this and still Mm -hmm. have any kind of a successful life. Mm -hmm. So I managed to suppress it. I always was thinking of it. There was not a waking hour of my life that I can think of where I wasn't at least thinking about this. So it was something that was constantly there. I I liken it to having a splinter in your finger that you can't get out. You know, you get used to it, but you always know that it's there. And every so often you hit it and it reminds you that it's, it's there and that it's painful. So that was kind of what being trans was like for most of my life. But what changed things for me was in, and I can give you the exact date, April 21st, 2017. You got done filing your taxes and you were like, all right. That's what I need to do. Is there a tax break for this? I don't know. There should be. There should be. I wish. I had heard about uh, this new app that had come out called FaceApp. And- you know, they were talking about it and joking about it on some of the late night TV shows. And they were doing NFL quarterbacks, uh, showing what they might look like if they were women. And I had seen other things in the past and it was always really poor. You know, Mm -hmm. it it would put a wig on your head and and maybe paint your lips red or something (laughs) stupid like that. Mm -hmm. And I really wasn't expecting a lot, but I uploaded one of my photos And when I saw it, it just blew me away because for the first time I saw what I felt was a realistic representation of what I might look like had I been born female. I saw a resemblance to my mom that I had never noticed before. And that just sort of started the ball rolling. And there were a lot of big things and little things that I did between that date in 2017 and when I finally socially transitioned January 1st of last year, you know, everything from, I went to Walmart and bought a pair of women's sneakers. They didn't look any different from men's sneakers. They were uh-huh, black sneakers. Uh-huh. There was nothing about them, but just knowing that they were being marketed as women's sneakers hmm. and that they were in women's sizes made me feel good. And everything yeah. I was doing was pretty much invisible to everybody else. You know, even hmm. fairly major things like I legally changed my name to Bernie. It's the name I've always gone by, mm. and it was short for Bernard, but mm-hmm. that name I only used when I had to legally. But everybody knew me as Bernie. So I figured, well, Bernie can be short for Bernadette. Yeah. And I figured, okay, well, that's, again, something that I can do that just will feel good for myself. Nobody else will necessarily notice this, but it was it was right. So that was, again, a lot of small and big things that that took place up into that social transition and 
the past year has been uh, one filled with adventure. But I think for most trans people, when they transition, there's a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear. What is this going to be like? Am I going to lose all my friends? Am I going to lose my job? You know, what's going to happen? And for the most part, I have been pleasantly surprised by everything that's happened. Well, that's that's wonderful. I'm 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 sure our listeners will really uh, uh, get a kick out of that. Thank you, Bernie, uh, for sharing that. Um, we're here today to talk about a uproarious comedy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from that from an inspiring tale into something that is uh, uh, it's inspiring in its own way. It's inspiring you know? <laughs> in, in its own way, I suppose. Um, in in the film Airplane, yes, which uh, is widely considered to be, I think, maybe one of the funniest movies. Of all time. And this is also a movie that I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a really long time because it is one of my favorite comedies. Um, and and Bernie, when I reached out to you to start talking about coming on the show, uh, we got on like a Zoom call, went back and forth for a little bit, and uh, the topic of Airplane came up. What made you want to talk about this movie and what is your relationship with it? It is one of my favorite movies. I, I love comedies. To me, when I watch a movie, I don't want to be sad or necessarily mm. think deeply i like to to laugh and forget about whatever troubles are going on during that day so that's mm. that was part of it i i love the, the the comedy of the movie and when i first saw it the movie came out in 1980 i don't believe i saw it in a theater although i may have but the first dialogue in the movie was something that years later I actually got to live. So yes. that was, that was kind of cool too. Brian AJ, did you guys have experience with this movie before we watched it for the show? Yes. I, 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 I there's no version of my life that I can remember before having seen this movie. It right. got play <laughs> on TV my entire life. Like it was just always on TV. So I, I had certainly seen it in bits and chunks before seeing it all the way through. I don't know if I've ever watched the actual theatrical cut of the film before and what's really weird is that the tv version not only cuts things and even has a couple of alternate takes of the same shot uh like the topless shot where she's clothed or whatever there are scenes in the tv distribution that are not in the theatrical film oh so there are jokes that i remember and there are also like jokes i remember from airplane 2 that it's like oh yeah you just kind of get them mixed up but like for instance the two kids who talk to each other and they they both talk like you know 30 year old professional adults or whatever they had like three scenes in the tv version of the movie and all of their dialogue is just straight up lifted from a movie called crash landing in 1958 and in the theatrical cut, it's just the one scene of them where they, you know, they have their coffee. Wait, in Crash Landing, does she say that she likes her coffee like she likes her men? Black? No, no. Is that, they, okay. they embellished <laughs> that one. I need to just get that, clear that <laughs> for myself. Yeah, slight embellishments here and there, but mostly, <laughs> sure. mostly the same. Yeah, no, I had not seen this movie all the way through until yesterday. Uh, I had seen bits and pieces. It had always been on the background in parties and things. Mm. So I remembered certain parts of it. I remembered the bit of, I just want I just want to tell you all good luck. We're all counting on yep. you, which yep. was, I thought, for a long time, the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and then and then I was proven wrong because there was a joke in here that made me laugh so hard I actually had to pause the movie <laughs> and, and take a breather. <laughs> this film is so fascinating to me 
because it's just it's so different than any comedy that's currently being made like mm-hmm. no one is really going for this kind of slapstick it's relentless well, and in it, its jokes it should you be know? said people weren't really making movies like this then until right, right. this movie came out and inspired a lot of copycats the only thing like more recently that i can think of that has this sort of tone was like angie tribeca which I don't yeah. think a lot of people watched. This is a movie that my mom quotes all the time. <laughs> okay. I rewatched it this morning just because it's been a few years since I've last seen it. So each time you watch it, you pick up something new. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I like about it. It's it's not like, oh, okay, I've already seen this. There, oh, there's something new I didn't think of before. How did this movie even come to exist here? I normally don't do the deep dives. This is usually Brian's domain. Yeah. But I just really needed to do this. And so... In my research, I decided that we need a brand new segment. And now, a 24th Stanley Cup banner will hang from the rafters of the famous forum in Montreal. The Canadians win the Stanley Cup. The Worst of All Possible Worlds presents Profiles in Canadian Excellence. What the fuck are you going on about? So (laughs) this all starts with a man known as Arthur Haley. Arthur Haley was born in Luton in England in the year 1920 Mm. and ended up serving in World War II in the Royal Air Force. He was such a hardcore Tory, though, that when labor came in in the post-war, he was like, I'm out of here. And he moved to Canada. (laughs) You won't socialize my health care. That's right. (laughs) And so the most Tory man alive started (laughs) writing gigs for hire. And something that I thought was so funny about this is that in some ways, his trajectory was like the bizarro world version of yours, Bernie, where like you ended up going down the radio track, whereas he ended up going down the print track. Mm -hmm. Um, He did a bunch of writing gigs for hire, at one point, he ended up the editor of something called Bus and Truck Transport. Oh, wow. It's like an industry oh, journal yeah. in Canada. Was it just for like non-equity tours? <laughs> <laughs> so the first script that he sold, like his first original script that this guy, Arthur Haley, sold was for a teleplay called Flight into Danger. And uh, it was picked up by the CBC. Wow. Okay, and so that was the CBC, his very first. Very first script that he sold. Uh, and the CBC broadcast this teleplay in 1956. And basically the gist of this movie is that there is a passenger jet. It's in the air. It's flying west to Vancouver. And the pilots get food poisoning from bad fish. A World War II flying ace. Eh, see, he was he was in the Royal Air Force. Eh, uh-huh. Has to land the plane. <laughs> so it's really just like if I had been there, it would have been different. No, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the, the funny thing about this, too, is that the pilot in this original teleplay flight into danger was played by none other than James Doohan, a.k.a. Scotty from Star Trek. Also worth noting that uh, James Doohan also served in the Canadian Infantry and Air Force. He was on Juno Beach. Yeah. During like. At the D-Day landing, he he wow. was rolling up with one of those like, you know, fucking saving Private Ryan ass things. So, yeah. And he um, got he got wasted by friendly fire. He got shot multiple times, which is why he lost his finger. But he also got <sighs> shot, I think, in the head or like in the torso, in the leg by because it was the middle of the night and he was moving from one spot to another in another Canadian 
soldier just started firing because wow. he saw that shadow on the horizon. You really need to stop sneaking up on people. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously a, a real profile in Canadian excellence here. Yeah. And uh, the, the excellence continues for Arthur Haley, right? Because in 19... 1950- That's a word for it. <laughs> <laughs> in 1957, Paramount, uh, the Hollywood studio, picks up the teleplay from the CBC and adapts it into a Hollywood film entitled Zero Hour. Uh, this is released to, I would say, mild commercial success. Yeah, I mean, this was a B movie. This was yeah. this was a movie that sure. I think the miniature work is very charming. I don't mean that condescendingly either. It's like really fun to watch, but boy, it's it's rough. But yeah. the dialogue is so ridiculous. It's there's so a, funny. There's a character who's just Senor Wenthes at some point just pulls out this weird little hand puppet that he <laughs> <Yes>. has. <laughs> I couldn't believe that that somehow didn't end up in airplane. It's so ridiculous. There's more <laughs> hand puppets in movies. But the the main effect of this movie is that it really raises Arthur Haley's profile, right? Mm-hmm. There's a novelization of the film. Uh, it also ends up being a modest commercial success. And now Haley is a bankable writer. In 1968, this is 11 years after the release of Zero Hour, Doubleday publishes Airport. Airport is a novel also written by Arthur Haley, where an airport general manager tries to keep an airport open during a snowstorm uh, when a hijacker detonates a suicide bomb and that airplane then has to land at this airport in the middle of a snowstorm. Also, right? everyone is is cheating on their wife right yes. at this exact moment. Yes. They have to yes. cheat on their wife. <laughs> Otherwise, they can't land the plane. This movie was released to near universal critical revulsion. Yes. And it yes. was wow. one of the biggest hits of the late 60s well, as far as crazy, novels are right? concerned. Like The book was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. In number one for 30 weeks. <laughs> I can explain this, though. Oh, yeah? <laughs> they sold it in airport stores, and everyone was like, airport? That's where I am, <laughs> and bought it immediately. <laughs> and so Universal, seeing the you know success of this book, they option it, uh, they make it into a film of the same name. It's released in 1970, this movie is dog shit. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Zero Hour is like fun and bad, yeah. but like this movie is so goddamn boring. Bernie, have you seen Airport? I saw it years and years ago. <laughs> okay. And, and I what think- an impression it made. <laughs> <laughs> and weren't there, a, you know, wasn't that about the time the Poseidon Adventure yes. also came out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, it's shot on Todd A.O., so it looks really gorgeous, right? The equivalent of IMAX at the time. It, it was costumed by Edith Head. Uh, they had all these big stars, Gene Seberg, Dean Martin, others. Fucking Helen Hayes! <laughs> Helen Hayes won an Oscar for it. The movie, she has a theater! <laughs> this, this movie was also released to Universal Critical Revulsion. Yes. I mean, no one, no one writing reviews of anything, no one who liked movies liked this movie, but it was a massive hit. Yeah, uh, it was the second highest grossing film of 1970 in the yeah. United States. Edged out by Love Story. It pulled down $128 million <sighs> against a $10 million budget. It makes me so mad. It makes me so (laughs) mad that this thing even exists. But the big effect of Airport is that now all of a sudden disaster movies are the new trend. And I know, Bernie, you were talking before we recorded a little bit about how, you know, you sort of remember these trends, right? Were you just taking in a bunch of disaster movies in the 70s? 
I I remember seeing that. I remember the Poseidon adventure in particular, you know, instead of airplanes, now we have boats that we're having disasters (laughs) on. And I'm sure there were others that aren't coming to mind immediately, but... Oh, I've got a list here. You want to hear them? (laughs) So... In 1974 alone, you get Earthquake and the Towering Inferno. Oh, yep, yep, I remember uh, that. The later <laughs> 70s, you get Roller Coaster. What is Roller Coaster? I ha- Hold on, I have to ask. What is it just <laughs> What does it sound like? Co- yes, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. But how long could that movie be? It's just they're trapped, they put a ladder up, they're safe. Well, that's the great thing is the airport showed you could do nothing for the right. first hour and right. 40 minutes. And then Literally. finally let the ta- plane take off and the bomb doesn't even go off until 15 minutes before credit rolls. Are you telling me that the first hour of roller coaster is just people cheating on their wives in a roller coaster? It could very well be. <laughs> Who knows? No one's seen it. Uh, <laughs> there's also Meteor, Avalanche, Flood, Ooh. Hurricane. <laughs> no, those aren't movie <laughs> titles. All movies, all from the 70s. There are at least five different movies about killer bee swarms. <laughs> Uh, there's the Poseidon Adventure. There is a sequel to the Poseidon Adventure. Mm. So it turns out there was a morning after. That's for all the Poseidon Adventure heads out there. Um, there's Thanks, Brian. <laughs> then there was like an attempt at doing a prestige disaster movie about the Hindenburg mm. called The Hindenburg. <laughs> there are three more airport movies. The second movie is called Airport 1975, and it was released in 1974. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> the future is now, Brian. <laughs> the last one is about the Concorde. It's just called the Concorde, Airport 1979. And weirdly, the one real Concorde that they used for filming for exteriors is the Concorde that ended up crashing in 2000, bringing down no the whole fleet. No way. Wow. Yeah. Also, the plane that they used in exteriors for this for, for Airport One also crashed a few years later. You want to talk about like disaster movies. There's really one disaster movie that sort of looms large over the entirety of the 70s. And that, of course, is much like Leon, much like Leon getting larger. Yeah. Uh, and that is, of course, Jaws. Jaws goes beyond the disaster movie, right? Like critics actually are a little bit warmer to it. The crowds love it even more than they did anything else. And we've never seen sales like this before. This right. heralds the the new kind of model, the blockbuster leading to Star Wars, leading to Marvel, leading to everything that we understand movies to be today in the 21st century. Thanks, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Like, because you were, you know, squarely in the demographic that these movies were being pitched toward in the 70s, what are sort of your memories of these movies, you know, how people were talking about them and just sort of what the, the pop culture landscape looked like? Well, I think one of the things that comes to mind is, and again, I think of the Poseidon Adventure first and foremost, was it was sort of a disaster love boat. All these stars Mm -hmm. who weren't necessarily doing a lot of work elsewhere at the time are in this film. And, you know, you're kind of rooting for Ernest Borgnine because you think of him as Mikhail's Navy or something. (laughs) Right. Or or for our younger listeners, uh, Mermaid Man from uh, SpongeBob SquarePants. I think I saw it as cheesy even at the time. Red Buttons, you know, another actor who was probably past his prime at the time he was doing this film. That that's what I think of when I when I think of some of these disaster films. I feel like that's sort of the big thing that adventure movies become a template for in many ways. Adventure slash disaster movies, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's we can take these guys, recontextualize them in a new way, and now their career gets another 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> because all they have to do is stand up there, say lines and 
not be dead. You know, yeah, it's interesting that it's like it's usually not sort of a regular star. It's either yeah, someone be past their prime or someone really young who's still kind of on the upswing, like O.J. Simpson in the Towering mm -hmm. Inferno, and later the Naked Gun film. Yeah, and uh, and later, uh, who knows? No one's heard of him for a while. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm I'm looking at my phone now. Uh, it looks like he just went on to live a very normal life. Yes, mm. uh, no no complications. <laughs> I love Poseidon Adventure because I love watching a ship sail. I love a good disaster movie where a boat meets its untimely end. <laughs> it gets what it uh, deserves. It gets what it deserves. <laughs> uh, but we are ultimately not here to talk about airport, and thank God for that. Uh, we are here to talk about airplane. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I would With like the to exclamation point. Don't yes. forget yep. the exclamation yes. point. Yeah, Josh, can we hear that? Can we hear yes. the exclamation point? Absolutely. Airplane. There it is. Uh, there it is. <laughs> so enter now David and Jerry Zucker. And Jim Abrahams. David and Jerry went to high school with Jim in Shorewood, which is a inner ring suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm. And uh, after graduating from high school, the three also went to UW-Madison together. Mm. Uh, so these are hardcore Wisconsin boys. Sort of not, I wouldn't say my natural nemesis. Like if they were from Ohio, they would be my natural nemesis. They're more my natural foils. Wisconsin is a parallel Michigan. Correct. Right? They're not enemies, Correct. but they exist on different planes. And you actually, if you're in Michigan, you can't go to Wisconsin. That's right. And other way around it, it creates a, a massive paradox. A paradox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not good. Um, Boss Jorman well, will try and beat the shit out of you, Josh, right. if you ever go to Wisconsin. While they were at UW-Madison together, David, Jerry, and Jim formed a comedy troupe that they called the Kentucky Fried Theater. Mm. And I have here a quote from Rich Markey, who also ended up working in the entertainment industry. Uh, he wrote an article in the UW Alumni Magazine from spring 2007, and I'm just going to quote from that. Their initial inclination was to create stage sketches that mirrored the social and political targets then in vogue, such as military service, President Nixon, recreational drug use, and the generational divide. We avoided politics. We just wanted to make people laugh, Chudno says. Jerry Zucker also avoided political confrontations. One day, a block party right in front of his rented house on Mifflin Street turned into a showdown with police. His roommate, Andy Strauss, 72, went outside and got tangled up in the ensuing violence. The conflagration was broadcast live on network TV, and Andy's parents saw the broadcast and realized where it was occurring. Worried, they called and asked to speak to their son. Jerry told them, Andy can't come to the phone right now. He's outside rioting. <laughs> <laughs> I like this quote, and I like this sort of as a, 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 a summation of sort of what Kentucky Fried... Uh, theater was doing at the time. They were right. reflecting what was going on sociopolitically at the time, but they were not political. Mm -hmm. And I am curious, Bernie, because you were, you know, a teenager during the heights of the Vietnam War protests. Uh, mm -hmm. I I'm curious to hear sort of like what you remember about this time and what it looked like for you. One of my classmates, I was in sixth grade at the time, his older brother was killed in Vietnam. So oh, that wow. probably wow. is the, the most vivid memory mm -hmm. for me of, of that. But, you know, what I remember was just watching this and thinking of, oh, the silent majority mm -hmm. and the iron workers in New York were very conservative and they would beat up the, 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 the hippies that were oh, protesting wow. and that sort of thing. No, you know, so, and another thing that was very vivid, um, it's still on TV now, the 10 o'clock news on channel five in New York, every Friday they would do an honor roll of mm. all the people from the New York metro area that had died 
in the past week. And that was just very vivid of you see all these names. It was not just two or three names. This went on for, you know, I think at least a minute, Mm. maybe longer of all these people who had died. So those were the things that really stood out in my memory. You know, certainly big events like Kent State. Mm -hmm. It was before I was in college, but I was looking toward college and thinking Mm. about, oh, wow, you know, what, what would this mean for me? I fortunately turned 17 when the draft had ended, mm. but I didn't know that it would end when I yeah. was, you know, sure, yeah. an early teenager and thinking, oh, you know, what am I going to do when I become draft age? And I think there's something interesting, too, about the way that then this sort of stuff, you can either call it out directly and satirize it. Or you can sort of create comedy in a parallel lane that, like, you know, doesn't confront it so directly. To me, laughing, I remember watching mm-hmm. that, and that was revolutionary yeah. Yeah. to the, the kind of comedy that they were doing. You know, because I grew up on things like Ed Sullivan and, you know, the stand-up comics that they would have on, on those kinds of shows. And so that was what I was used to. And when I saw Laughing, that was, oh, wow, this is, you know, and the, the sitcoms of the 60s, you know, the CBS rural comedies and mm-hmm, all those things. Mm-hmm. That was what I thought comedy was, you know, and you'd hear about blue albums that I wasn't allowed to listen yeah, to, Red Fox you know, and, that, yeah. that, that would be out there. But that wasn't what that wasn't on my radar. It was it was more the absurdist sure. type things. Well, and, you know, it, just bringing it back to uh, Airplane or how we get to Airplane, Kentucky Fried Theater, they're able to find their wheelhouse with this really absurd stuff pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? And they start developing a, sort of a reputation as being a cult favorite in Wisconsin. And after Jerry Zucker graduates from college, uh, all three of them move west and start mm-hmm. making connections in Hollywood. In Hollywood, they meet a director known as John Landis, Heard of him? Uh, <laughs> Don't let that man near a helicopter. And he, of course, would later go on to direct movies including Blues Brothers, Animal House, Coming to America. Like Zucker Abram Zucker and John Landis put together a whole bunch of sketches that they mostly wrote and performed during their time at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, hmm. And this was something called Kentucky Fried Movie, which was released in 1977. It ended up grossing $7.1 million against a $650,000 budget. And now they are officially indie comedy up and comers. It's hit or miss, as is often the nature of sketch. Some things really haven't aged well, but there are a few banger fucking jokes, like some unbelievably funny writing. And the Hmm. best jokes are the ones that are in the wheelhouse that come to be associated with Zucker Abram Zucker, which is to say really clever writing that involves a lot of wordplay coupled with dense visual gags. So fast forward to 1979. Disaster movies, as we previously talked about, have now reached a total saturation point. And I think in a lot of ways, things are primed for a movie that sends up disaster movies, much like how Mel Brooks made Blazing Saddles and basically killed the Western. At this point, Airport has already had three sequels. Airport 1975, released in 1974. Because it's about the future. (laughs) Don't you want to know about the future of a few months from now? Airport 77, released in 1977. There we go. And of course, (laughs) Airport 80, the Concorde, released in 1979. God damn it. (laughs) So 
David and Jerry Zucker have an idea, right? And this is just quoting straight from a Guardian article about it. That was an interview with them. We used to seek out movies that were mind-numbingly serious and dub them with our own voices. Late one night, we caught Zero Hour, a 1957 film about a former World War II pilot landing a stricken passenger flight and thought, why don't we recreate the whole movie instead? Yeah. And good news, the president of Paramount, a young man known as Michael Eisner, is interested. Well, and that's the thing is like most people at the time and certainly like my parents, the way they understood this movie was like, yeah, it's a parody of of airport. But no, it's actually a remake of Zero Hour. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, they 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 got the rights for it and everything. The, the Paramount already had the rights. That's yeah. the thing. It was the same studio. There, there's a writing credit that goes to the screenwriter for Zero Hour. Right. It's like it's all because beyond just making fun of it, they straight up just do entire scenes of dialogue. Right. Exactly as written or almost exactly as written in 1957. Yep. And it should be mentioned that all of the actors who are receiving the script for this, like a lot of big names are turning this thing down. Yeah. Right. They offer they offer this to Charlton Heston. And I can only imagine what <laughs> him reading this script would have been like. I like to think that that's why he was like he got the script for Wayne's World, too. And he's like, oh, I can't do this again. I can't let this opportunity pass. <laughs> you know, the people that they did end up with actually battled with the script even while they were filming it because they kept trying to, like, find character motivations. And yeah. the director just kept having to tell them just say the lines i yeah. promise you this will work yeah. but you can't think about it too hard and so it is greenlit by paramount with a 3.5 million dollar budget and is released to immediate commercial and critical success in the summer of 1980 the red zone is for immediate loading and unloading of passengers only there's no stopping in the white zone no, the white zone is for loading and unloading, and there is no stopping in the red zone. The red zone has always been for loading and unloading. There is never stopping in a white zone. Don't tell me which zone is for stopping and which zone is for loading. <laughs> Listen, Betty, don't start up with your white zone shit again. <laughs> and the thing is, you could watch this scene and not even really catch the dialogue until it's been going on for a while because right. it's very complex you have all of these big moving camera setups that are introducing you to all of the very colorful characters that you'll be hanging out with for the rest of the film and of course right. all of this great uh elmer bernstein music playing throughout and i think he also deserves a lot of credit for writing comedic music and writing mm-hmm. music that has a setup and eventually a punchline at the climax of the film but brian you put a note in here these announcements are done by a real husband and wife mm-hmm yeah, the mm-hmm. so they were trying to find the right people. Uh, they auditioned a bunch of of folks to do the voiceover, and they're like, ah, "Just this doesn't just doesn't sound right." So mm-hmm. they, I think it was the uh, LAX announcements. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was this guy Doc Taylor and his wife. I couldn't find his name, but <laughs> I couldn't find his wife's name. I could find Doc Taylor's name because there was a little article about him in the LA Times, and he owns a company. He 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 or owned a company that produced. Announcements. So it would be stuff like being in the Phoenix airport and saying, you know, the smoking area is over here mm-hmm. or stuff for like taxi services saying, you know, make sure you get all your luggage on the way out. And I think it's interesting because he's not someone who worked in movies. His wife also did these announcements, also didn't work in movies. And they got to do these lines back and forth and as husband and wife. You know, we've talked about radio drama and we talk about movies and actors and uh, we are actors, AJ and I especially, and we've done some voiceover stuff too. But this is a really different side of the industry and it's one that you're in, Bernie, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How do, how does this industry work? How do people find <laughs> the people to do the voices for announcements At for the trains? Yeah, for the trains, for the airports. Because you've done both, Taxis, right? yeah. yeah. I think there's a few different ways. There is a company, there are probably more than one company, but there's one well-known company, and I don't even know the name of the company. I think they're based in St. Louis. Okay. That provides voices for places like airports. In fact, you can hear her voice in the New York City subway. Her name is Carolyn Hopkins. Mm. She Mm. does what I do for the lettered subway lines. Right. And she's up in Maine. But she's also like at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Many of the airports, you'll hear her voice. So that company markets that service. And she was hired by that company. And I think they have a male announcer that's sort of her equivalent for the company if somebody wants a male voice instead of a female voice. So that's one way. The other way is basically they know of somebody and they ask. That was the story with me. Right. Hmm. I know the guy up in Boston who had done a lot of the announcements up there. He was just an employee of the MBTA. And when they needed a voice, he had a good speaking voice. So they hired him. So it's it can be a little bit of of both. Um, And there are people who also are voiceover actors who audition for these things yeah. that you'll, you're here on different systems. Now, I, I, I just want to point up as well, Bernie, when we were talking a bit about what thing we should do, one of the things that you mentioned is that you did basically this, the, the you know, loading and unloading like voiceover stuff <laughs> at Newark Liberty Airport, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I do the announcement. As far as I know, it still runs, wow. you know, that tells you basically move your car, you'll be towed. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I never have a dialogue with myself about right, it. Right, right, right. <laughs> I wish that's how it worked. That'd be I, cool. would, I would love to hear the announcers argue with each other. I'm assuming this is a flat rate thing. You don't get usage or royalties or no, anything. No, yeah. I got paid for when I did it, and, okay. and that was it. <laughs> Can you imagine the royalties you would get if oh, every, every single time? Oh, yeah. Even so, if it was just a penny that right. I got paid for every time my voice was used in the subway, I would be rich. <laughs> I mean, here's a question that I have for you. And I just want to be very clear, by the way, if this isn't something that you want to talk about, that's totally OK. Oh, no, I don't um, mind talking about it. I don't but, mind. You know, you the voice that is that plays on the on the subways is still, I guess you could say, like your, your masculine or, or male presenting voice. Right. Yeah, I call it my guy voice. Your guy, your guy voice. voice. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you still do work with that guy voice? Are you now like, I don't want to do that anymore? Like, where do you find yourself? And and, and what does that look like in, in terms of your day-to-day work? Maybe the best way to answer that is by doing this. The next downtown number two <laughs> will arrive in two minutes. Please stand away from the platform edge. It's unreal. So hear, I don't mind yeah. that voice. I, if they need new announcements... And they, the most recent one was in December. I recorded new announcements mm. for the subway. Okay. I go back oh. to that voice. Hmm. And I'm a voice actor. So that yeah. is a voice that I'm acting in. So I don't it, have a problem with it. Bernie, it literally, I mean, just to give like sort of the listeners the experience of watching that, it was like you were possessed <laughs> by an entirely different person. <laughs> and that voice just came out of you. It's 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 unreal. I, that's I, acting, right? Yeah. I mean, that's fucking acting. Just, just yeah. the tone of it, too. It was like you were dubbed. It was like yeah. like it came from a totally different place. And, and AJ and I are... <laughs> I'm uh, AJ is a talented actor and no, no, Brian is also a very talented actor. And but like that, actor. that level of skill and control always just yeah. blows me away. If 
let's say in a voice actor wanted one of these jobs, they just have to ask uh, somebody for, uh, do you have a name or perhaps a phone number that we could call? Uh, the Patreon pays the bills, but uh, I'm in deep. I hope AJ, so. the MTA does not want someone going off on tangents about horses. <laughs> Let me fill that five minute wait that you have. <laughs> Have you looked at the Central Park horse carriage rides? Maybe. <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> well, let's let's get back into uh, let's get back into the movie here. Sure. Now with sort of everything framed up, like you said, Brian, you know there are shots of all of the parts of the airport. Yeah. We're seeing the way, the and they're very works. complex. They're very very well built shots. This is, none mm-hmm. of this is lazy, and I think a lot of times. When comedy movies get produced, they're they're under budget mm-hmm. or sometimes there's a charm to being slapdash, we say as podcasters. Um, and <laughs> but like this movie really takes its jokes seriously. There's a yeah. massively expensive gag they do where the guy who's holding the, the big glowing rods on the runway points to direct his co-worker in, in another direction and causes a plane to crash into the airport. And they have this huge model of the yeah, front a of a plane. that is a full-size practical effect. Crashing yeah. in through all of these windows. It's all uh, over-cranked and in slow motion yep. and this huge crowd of, of stuntmen running away from it. It's fantastic. You know, as they're walking through the airport, something that I don't see anymore, but I remember it, happening all the solicitations that you would get yeah. you know, for the the moonies or whatever yeah. <laughs> i will say this if you fly into san francisco airport those guys are still there really <laughs> oh yeah wow. in wow. fact i had a shocking like uh, like an actual culture shock moment <laughs> when i flew into i think san jose and there was like a sign that was like we protect the free speech rights of all people oh who God. want to speak with you in this era. Some fucking, you know, Krishna's walked a bit. The whole thing. Wow. They still do it. Yeah. And there, there's a great reversal in this movie where two of the characters who end up on the plane in the film are Hare Krishna's. And mm-hmm. they're walking by some church of universal whatever. And they're like, right. well, we gave it the office, which is such a hyper specific phrase for yeah. that yeah. time period. right? <laughs> yeah. Like the only other time I've ever heard that was in a family guy episode. And they put it in Stewie's mouth to yeah. make it sound like purposefully old fashioned. But it is it's it's just not a phrase that's used to hitting my ear. And I think yeah. it's a really lovely one. <laughs> yeah. I want to bring back. I gave it the office. Well, we well, don't I have wanna, offices yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem. Nobody wants to work no anymore. Wants to work anymore. Wants no one wants <laughs> wants to solicit their cult at the airport anymore. Nobody wants to flip a Scientologist onto their back. <laughs> That's right. But uh, you know who does? Ted. Our no, hero. He sure does. Ted Stryker. I hardly know her. He's our main protagonist here, and he enters the airport because he is trying to track down Elaine. Elaine is his girlfriend. She's a flight attendant, and she's on the next plane out, right? And he wants to get to her in time to talk with her because, well, their relationship is on the rocks. Elaine. Ted. I came home early and found your note. I guess you meant for me to read it later. Elaine, I've got to talk to you. I just don't want to go over it anymore. I know things haven't been right for a long time, but it'll be different. Like it was in the beginning. If you'll just be patient, I can work things out. I have been patient and I've tried to help, but you wouldn't even let me do that. Don't you feel anything for me at all anymore? It takes so many things to make love last. Most of all, it takes respect. And I can't live with the man I don't respect. This is Robert Hayes playing Ted Stryker. 
and Julie Haggerty playing Elaine Dickinson. A big part of the magic of this movie is that, yeah, no one's really letting on that they're telling a joke. They're not making a goofy face. They're playing it straight. They're all of these very serious, deep voice actors. And... Uh, here they don't even have any jokes written, right? It's like when you're when you go to a midnight screening of the room, and then you're mm-hmm. supposed to sit in silence at the flower shop. You're just supposed to let that whole scene happen. They're really just letting the cheesiness be the joke here, and so these are sort of these these longer jokes, and you have the beginning of this Elmer Bernstein motif right. that will eventually pay off at the climax with with that really sour note that they get to hit. Julie Haggerty's voice, that's her real voice, apparently, because I, I yeah. looked at other clips to see if that, if that was just put on for this film or that's how she actually talked. And apparently that's how she actually spoke. Her energy is so weird, isn't it? <laughs> like in a good way. Like you say, they, they played that straight. Although, again, her voice does add a little bit of comedic effect, I think, yeah. even though she's doing straight lines. You don't stay in those serious moments all that long. You know, mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. there are other things that they'll they'll go back to that are still funny. So you, you kind of go back and forth. You don't have long, long, serious stretches. I, I promise that in this episode, we are not going to deconstruct the comedy to death, except for right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> strap in. I just wanted to, t- this is the one piece that I like really outlined exhaustively because this scene is so precise. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about all of its moving pieces. So the next character that we meet after Ted and Elaine is Clarence Over. He is going to be the pilot. Uh, and the scene that introduces him here is just, I think, so mechanically impressive. So right. to get started with, the captain is at the newsstand and he's browsing the magazines. This scene begins with him browsing the, the fiction and nonfiction magazine sections. And then we get our first visual gag, which is that there has been a guy sort of standing on the right side of the frame. He steps out of the frame to reveal a third, much larger magazine section called whacking material (laughs) (laughs) it's all porno mags i i should have paused and looked at all the titles one of them was called boxed lunch (laughs) (laughs) so over subsequently moves over to the whacking material he picks up and peruses a magazine entitled modern sperm and then he gets paged over the pa to pick up the white courtesy phone We've gotten the white and red bit set up from the very beginning Mm -hmm. of the movie. That's the first joke, right? Right. And he goes over to the courtesy phone, picks up the red phone, and the voice on the other hand says, no, the other phone. (laughs) (laughs) Also, like lines of action, we're taking a slight angle at the wall uh, on the magazines. We're not going head on like a Wes Anderson shot or like The Graduate. Um, Right, right. And the action moves right first to go to the porno mags and then... Uh, the dolly goes left over to the phones. So we're kind of washing this way and then washing back that way. You get to see some of the other categories for Mm -hmm. magazines. Stuff like golf magazine is labeled under fiction. I like the implication that golf does not exist in the airplane universe. <laughs> yes. Uh, so over then, of course, picks up the uh, the correct phone, mm-hmm. uh, the white phone. And at this point, he is put on the line with a doctor from the Mayo Clinic. And you can tell because behind the doctor is a wall of jars of mayonnaise. Yes. <laughs> huge, huge mayo. Exactly and a, the joke a- that you're going to expect them to do. Right. And they're talking about this heart transplant. This is a plot beat in airport 74. 
okay. with Linda Blair as this sick child who has to be, uh, you know, lifted off and taken oh, it's Linda wherever Blair? it is. Oh, yeah, poor Linda Blair, oh. poor woman. <laughs> oh man! And uh, so they're they're talking about, oh yeah, we have this heart that's available for transplant, but the heart is live and sitting on the Mayo Clinic guy's desk and just yeah, and you can, pulsing you can see, and bouncing around. There are strings on it. You can yes. see the strings see that are making this heart imagine, bounce around. You can imagine the person off camera bouncing it around, going, <laughs> yep. 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 like really yep. having a great time. And and so all of this then has come together. We have been effectively introduced to this character. Mm-hmm. We have been introduced to the stakes of a subplot. And just to polish it all off, we get this final kicker. This is the operator, Captain Over. I have an emergency call for you on line five from a Mr. Ham. All right, give me Ham on five. Hold the mail. So let's establish here. We've had <laughs> sight gags. Uh, we've had um, reversal of expectations sort of comedy. And we have one of the silliest pun punchlines uh, in the history of cinema, all within <laughs> what a minute, minute and a half, and that's sort of how 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 compact this movie is, right? How tightly yeah. written it is that that they they just throw every joke they can at the wall, and somehow they all harmonize with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that maybe you guys overlook because you're younger is. Peter Graves, the the actor who's playing Captain Over, right. was pretty much known to people who were seeing this movie originally as the guy from Mission Impossible, yeah. the TV show. And he was a very serious actor on that. And seeing him in this context, just that alone is funny. So forget right. about any punchlines or visual jokes. Just seeing him play a comedy role is humorous in and of itself. So that is one of the things. But wow. like you say, there... There is so much to see. I was doing a lot of pausing today when I was watching it just to, yeah. okay, I, I missed this. And the version I saw apparently was severely edited from the original movie because there was a lot of stuff that you've mentioned already that I did not even see in the version that I watched today. I think there's three cuts of this movie. And so, yeah, there are, there are just whole gags that that disappear depending on what version you may have watched in the past or, or may watch today. Yeah. Most comedy movies, when they introduce a character, like the idea is that you like introduce their thing from the word go. And then that's sort of their thing for the rest of the movie, right? That they're, they're comic utility. Yeah. And what's so interesting about captain over is that you think, you know what his deal is. And then later they reveal a very different <laughs> side of him. <laughs> and coming off of mission impossible too. What a, what a brave choice yeah. to take yeah. this role. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would be brave enough to play. <laughs> we'll, to play and we'll talk about Clarence that a little over. bit later. But yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's it's <laughs> strong, strong choices, big swings. Yeah. Um, and another big swing that the movie takes is in sort of the next big uh, set piece scene where after everybody gets on the plane, including Ted, he's able to get a smoking ticket and get on board. He <laughs> has this flashback scene where He is remembering his time being stationed at a post on the Barbary Coast, which apparently is populated by nothing but pirates and Italians. And and Girl Scouts. Yes, and Girl Scouts, of course. course. We also get a line here that uh, that Zucker, Abram Zucker used this line in Kentucky Fried Movie. They'll use it again later. Mm. Describing the place as worse than Detroit. Uh, Sort of funny. 
The line should have been worse than Cleveland, but whatever. I'll let it slide. Um, <laughs> he can't actually declare war in Wisconsin because that would actually break the space-time continuum. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. This turns into a Saturday Night Fever parody mm-hmm. that goes on for like seven or eight minutes. Yeah, it's a long scene, and Stryker's flashbacks go on too long mm-hmm. by design. Because yeah, it is part of that yeah. feeling of watching an old B movie and you're like having fun, but it is also just too long. And and this, of course, sets us up for the punchline where every time he comes back to the present, whoever he's been talking to has killed themselves or is about, <laughs> is to, about kill to This yeah. one, this is the moment when the camera panned back from this first story and the old woman that he had been talking to, you just see her legs dangling next <laughs> yeah. to him. I had to pause and take a lap around the apartment. I, I don't think I've laughed that hard at, at a, like a movie in like 10 years. <laughs> How ballsy a joke. Because and, and, it was also the feeling in the audience that you get watching that Saturday Night Fever thing. We're like, oh, this is going on too long. Mm-hmm. They're, they're having some real pacing problems. And then it comes back and it's just like, don't worry. The characters in the movie also think it has pacing problems. Well, it's interesting, too, because like there's a, a very tight set of things that characters can react to. Like almost never can they react to what someone says as like ridiculous. And so when they do, it's for a very specific sort of moment. Right. But usually right. the the humor just comes from treating that really ridiculous thing that person said as though it's just part of the regular dialogue and continuing yeah. to go on. And very impressive fight choreography from those scouts. I'll tell you. They, incredible uh, stunt work. It's yeah, really. And it, it's a sequence that goes on very long. But yeah. Like, Again, it's talking impressive. about like setups and very complicated things. All this breakaway scenery, mm-hmm. all this moving. Ca- like a big part of the Saturday Night Fever sequence is just this long fight sequence. And it's not happening in the background. It is the main attraction for like a minute and a half. And it's also, I think, setting up. I mean, not to get too like fucking metatextual or go. whatever. Here we go. But I, I do think that it is setting up also a sense. <laughs> of Ted as an unreliable narrator. Like, the the, the fact that everybody... Because <laughs> no, no, you imagine him describing in vivid detail these two Girl Scouts fighting as the woman is making the noose right next to him. Like, that, that's a funny extra level to yeah. it, I think, right? Like, him sitting here being like, Yes, and also I went out and I began disco dancing, and there was a guy who got stabbed. I don't like it. It worked on so many levels for me, and I think that's the best mm-hmm. joke sort of work in that way. Another piece here is that we get a flashback on Elaine's side, kind of like you know summer nights from Greece. They're kissing on the beach. Well, it's from here to eternity, Josh. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> this is a movie um, reference, so it's okay if you don't okay. know it. But okay. yeah, they're just straight up doing from here to eternity, okay. except sticking them further out into the into the ocean so that they get just destroyed by these waves. <laughs> this looks like it must have been miserable to shoot. It's so yeah. funny too. I mean, you just want to talk about like the little bits that make it funny, right? Yeah. They are, you know, making out on the beach, but they are very low down on the beach. So the tide comes in and just completely it covers moves them. Their bodies. Oh my yeah, god. You can push you can up s- the beach. <laughs> you can see the actors tense up yes. when the water hits them they're like they're kissing they make out in the water they're like no 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 no, no. don't take me out to sea they get uh, covered in real kelp <laughs> some of the, the bits that i clipped are the ones that work pretty well in audio format in this bit there is a little boy named joey this is pulled more or less directly from the original zero hour yes. joey is sort of a precocious little boy he gets pulled up into the airplane cabin because back in the day, kids could do that. They could just go into the cabin. Yeah, um, even in our lifetime, we're doing this. 
I re- yeah, yeah, I was gonna say I did that yeah. my first airplane flight. Did uh, you get a pair of wings and everything? Like the whole yeah, the whole yeah. deal? I didn't yeah. get a plane, but I did get a wing. <laughs> like the the entire model plane that they have in this cockpit, yes. which is also from Zero Hour. Yes, it is. Uh, oh wow! But yeah, that, that's just one of those things that changed after nine eleven. Sorry, anyone born after the year two thousand one, which is almost everybody who listens to this show. That's true. <laughs> but like I said, this is almost entirely dialogue and setup from the script of Zero Hour, but at one point it changes. So like, see if you can figure out what point that is. We have a visitor. Hello. Hi. This is Captain Over, Mr. Murdoch, and Mr. Basta. This is Joey Hammond. Well, hi, Joey. Come on up here, you can see better. Joey, we have something here for our special visitors. Would you like to have it? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Sure. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir, I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? (laughs) (laughs) Bernie, you have to understand something. Brian and Josh have been relentlessly quoting that at me for almost a hundred episodes. I have never had any idea what the fuck they were talking about until I watched this movie and I was like, oh... They've been quoting airplane at me. Well, it sounds like someone here hasn't been to a Turkish prison. That's right. Uh, So this again is Peter Graves. We mentioned him earlier. Same one who uh, does that earlier scene with the whacking material. This is such a dark choice. It is so funny. One of the most sophisticated pedophile jokes, I think, in cinema history. (laughs) And one of the most, like, beloved. Um, Yes. And this is playing off of the way that the actor playing the co-pilot in in zero hour is behaving because he is giving off a horrible horrible vibe yes uh, that (laughs) that is not being given off in the performance in this movie at all no which is also very funny right like peter graves was so uncomfortable with this like (laughs) he went along with it for the sake of the joke (laughs) who can say but you can even see him like cringing a little bit before he says the line So there's this funny tension going on between like the performer, the performance and what is being said. Well, again, I I didn't know that Peter Graves was a fairly conservative Christian and refused to to be at one point was not going to be in the film until he got some reassurances. So that plays into his uncomfortableness about saying some of this and how he plays that off. And the actor that plays Joey He's got that fresh scrubbed face look mm-hmm. yeah. that, that kid actors had back in the 1960s, like Leave It to Beaver and stuff like that. Yep. Curly yeah. hair and freckles. Just makes it even more pure. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. very Ron Howard. It's mm-hmm. such a delicate balancing act too. that the delivery of that line. Right. Yeah. It has to be exactly the same as every other question that came before. Yep. But it's just like the question is over before you've had time to process it, which <laughs> yeah. is exactly what it is so then the surprise catches up with you in real right. time like it's it's a masterful performance by the most uncomfortable actor I've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's way less handsy with the kid than in Zero Hour oh it's so bad in Zero Hour dude I, I also watched it uh, just because I'd never seen it before so I watched it for this podcast no one it's, has seen it before Josh. no no I know so I guess other piece here right is another I guess uncomfortable actor but here, I think the discomfort is part of the bit, yeah, right? Right. That the the co-pilot is a man named Roger Murdoch, or hmm. or is it? Flight two zero nine to Denver Radio, climbing to cruise at forty two thousand. We'll report again over Lincoln. Over and out. Wait a minute! I know you. You're Kareem and 
Abdul-Jabbar. You played basketball for the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. You are, Kareem. I've seen you play. My dad's got season tickets. I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. <laughs> Bye, Clarence. Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. <laughs> All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. <laughs> I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. <laughs> and he says that lots of times you don't even run down court. And that you don't really try. Except during the playoffs. <laughs> well, I don't. Listen, he grabs this kid's shirt. I've been hearing that crap ever since I was at UCLA. I'm out there busting my buns every night. Tell your old man to drag Walton in the near up and down the court for 48 <laughs> minutes. Joey, you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is wild because first of all, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a child in this. Like he's, he's so really young. Young. Yeah. young. And I, I actually think he gives a great performance in this movie uh, for as long as he's in it. It's like this is the one scene. It's it, I mean, there, there's there's another scene before this where they're all checking in and getting everything set up and saying Roger, Roger and Roger, over Roger, under. And, yeah, yeah. He, he's great here. I, I, I was watching this and I thought, wow, Hollywood reporter columnist Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was in this movie. <laughs> what a renaissance man. Really right? is. Truly. He's a fantastic writer. It's playing off of OJ, which is really funny because then Z work with OJ right. for the Naked Gun movies. What really made it for me was where Joey talks about, oh, but my dad thinks you don't run hard enough on defense. <laughs> right. That That's really what made it, not just recognizing him as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And of course, the other part that, again, might be lost on some people, you know, he's got the name Roger Murdoch. But before he became Kareem, he was Lou Alcindor. Yes. So there's, there's in real life a name change that he went through. Mm. Well, oh, and, yeah. and I feel like there's a couple other layers, too. Right. Like just just to put what I have here. Right. You've got the comment on celebrity cameos in movies, which we mentioned. There's the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is doing sort of an intentionally stilted performance. Mm -hmm. And then also right. the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the character is like getting mad at the kid. And then there's also all of the like in-world implications of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar moonlighting incognito as an airline pilot. Like, there's so many questions then that like that naturally leads to. You got a taste of the sky, Josh, and he can't he can't let go. Were you ever like a, a Lakers fan or anything like that, Bernie, or into basketball in any way? No, baseball was more my sport that I was into, and it was Mets. The Mets. Mets. Yeah. Let's go, Mets, baby. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh god. <laughs> It's a Mets podcast. Oh, yeah. It's Sorry, a Mets podcast. We're not yeah. going to talk about the movie anymore. This is all going to be about the Mets. something horrible inside of me. Spring <laughs> training starts in two weeks. Let's go. Um, uh, yes. So, <laughs> look, this 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 feels like as good of a time to take our break as any because now I'm just thinking about the Mets and I'm going to need to take a sort of walk around the apartment to cool down from <laughs> that exciting revelation. We'll put this on pause then. If it turned out that you were a Yankees fan, I'd have to kick you off at the break. Um... <laughs> No, we're, we'll, we'll get back to it. We're going to really talk about a whole lot of other fun gags, um, some more goofy stuff, and maybe even a, a return of a, a famous segment on our show that you know and love. So, uh, Wait, what segment? 
What segment? Choo-choo, worst of all possible worlds, listeners. The one train here, servicing 242nd Street to South Ferry. Except for all the times that I don't. I've been noticing some, let's say, interesting behavior by the riders who hop inside me lately and wanted to take this opportunity to go over some basic ground rules for when you want to trip the rails fantastic. Number one, Dan is no longer permitted to ride the subway. You know what you did, Dan. Number two, please don't climb on top of me and ride me like Spider-Man. Didn't you see what I did to Spider-Man when he tried to stop me in the movie? I almost tore him clean in two. So please don't make me turn you into a bisexual. Number three, Please stand away from the platform edge. I don't want to squish you. I say it so often, but do you listen? No, it's like you want to be squished. Is that what you want? Do you want me to squish you? I'm, I'm sorry, listeners. I know I sound snippy. It's been a hard century. When I was younger, I could make turns with ease. My switches were new. My chrome was shiny and bright, but now I'm getting older and I'm terrified I might be decommissioned, or worse, become a G-train. Or that maybe it's all more trouble than it's worth. The endless days of doing the same loop over and over makes me wonder why I even still do this. But then sometimes, sometimes, a few weeks ago I was going over the Broadway Bridge, my normal route, staring down the end of another long, endless night of carting starving artists home from their terrible barista jobs in Times Square, when suddenly this woman, this by all accounts very drunk woman, fresh off what one assumes was one of the karaoke bars in Midtown, starts singing loud and shrill, no music behind her, yet somehow off-key, about how terrible her day was, how her partner had just left her, how the world seemed dead set on grinding her dreams into dust, and some people tried to offer her money. Pretty par for the course. But this woman waved it all away and screamed, saying, I don't want your money. I just needed you all to know how awful my day was, and vanished into the next car, like a ghost in the night. A silence hung in the air for a time, until an older passenger, sitting alone at the end of the car, leaned forward, and in a clean, ringing baritone sang, Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. The car erupted in laughter, and suddenly it was like a spell had been broken. All the unspoken rules of the subway, keep your head down, plug in your headphones, tune out, just faded away. And something new and exciting and wonderful took their place. Two men on opposite ends of the car both wearing Mets hats, held up their fists and screamed, Go Mets! with all the infectious optimism of the first passengers on the Titanic. Strangers introduced themselves to each other as more and more people joined in with the older man's song. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. The lights of the New York skyline glistened in the distance. And for a brief and beautiful moment, the true beating heart of this city revealed itself inside a tiny subway car. My tiny subway car. And that, I think, is kind of a miracle. That, I think, makes the endless loop worth traveling. I will make that loop for as long as I am able. All I ask in return is one simple request. Please stand away from the platform edge. So I've been thinking lately yeah. mm. about uh -huh. um, closing doors. And I, I, I was I've, I've been thinking about standing 
in in them and just continuing to stand in them. This is, I think, what I'm going to be trying to do in the new year. This is my resolution is just to stand in <laughs> the way of closing doors. Yes. I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've been told explicitly several oh. times a very specific okay. phrase. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, but I have to tell you, that is not me that says that phrase right. on the subway. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there are many voices I want to on where credit trains. is doing. That is not me. Okay. <laughs> there was a conductor I had once uh, on the J train where they just, you know, the conductor comes on and says it, unless they're newer trains that have an automated system. He figured out the perfect way of, of boiling down the phrase, stand clear of the closing doors to its absolute essence. Mm. And he just said... Stagnors. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better than I remember. I had a subway driver, and I thought that he had condensed it pretty well, which was uh, clear the closed doors, please. But <laughs> I wonder if it was the same guy, just like a couple maybe years optimizing. apart. Yeah. The first thing that I just wanted to frame up here is the ongoing conflict between Elaine and Ted. Now we will remember, of course, Ted Stryker. He is our main protagonist, veteran pilot in war tk <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of like an intentionally pastiche kind of thing yeah and a then lot again, of his flashbacks are to like flying machines from like the early 1910s yes <laughs> <laughs> and then of course yeah. elaine his flight attendant girlfriend when they're actually on the plane they have another opportunity to sort of reconcile and uh, we get this i know things haven't been right for a long time ellen but it'll be different like it was in the beginning remember I remember everything. It's all I've ever had to go on. This, this, this isn't right. This doesn't yeah, sound quite right. The nights when we were together. I remember how you used to hold me. And then afterwards how we watched until the sun finally came up. No, sorry, stop that one, Brian. This isn't oh. quite how I remember it. Oh, okay. can, you, can you play the, the next clip? I know things haven't been right for a long time. There we go. Different. Like it was in the beginning, <laughs> remember? <laughs> I remember everything. Clip zero hours. They will take the whole thing which is so bad and so cheesy in the original writing. But then they put one little spike in there that makes you like perk up. And in this case, it's, you know, I, I would sit on, I, yeah. I sit on your face. Yeah. And then it's immediately <laughs> discarded like it was never said at all. I don't, I'm curious, Bernie, like, have, have you ever done any like comedic roles or anything like that where you sort of have to be deadpan? Because I feel like it could be in your in your wheelhouse. I'm just curious <laughs> if it's something that you have experience with or not. I've had very little experience a few times, though, I've done live performances, including I did a, a bit that was kind of a comedy show mm. that I was being the moderator for this comedy show. And I was supposed to be the straight man for it. Mm. But I found ways to inject some humor, which the audience seemed to very much enjoy. So I, I'm a terrible joke teller, <laughs> but it's more situational at the moment, I'll find something humorous and comment on mm -hmm. it as opposed to, oh, let me tell you about the joke of, you know, I can't do those. Right. But in the moment, I can sometimes be funny. <laughs> and I've done that, if, you know, I did that with a few live podcast performances in front of audiences. So I feel pretty comfortable. I think a, a big part of that is not being scared. And I've reached the point in my career where 
I'm not that nervous when I'm in front of a live mm. audience. So that I think makes a big difference too. But I don't think I would do well as a stand-up. Sure. That would not be my. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting that usually for like movies like this, you they you throw in like a seasoned comedian, like a seasoned stand-up into the mix of the cast. But I mean, pretty much across the board, they just used very serious actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. None more so than Leslie Nielsen, yes. who is uh, uh, probably like the most famous actor post this movie like this is what really launches his comedy career for the rest of his yeah, life he keeps working uh, with ZAZ specifically right on police squad the naked gun uh, scary movie three I think I think he starts to fall a little bit more into mugging and shtick um, but here he plays it the way that people would know Leslie Nielsen he plays it very straight he, he had done a little bit of comedy before this like he had done an episode of mash but his character was not a funny character in that episode of MASH. Now, no. I, I know Leslie Nielsen, if not for this, which, of course, I grew up with um, for his dramatic roles. The, the thing that comes to my head first is Forbidden Planet. He has a kind of acting that I can only really describe as like Columbo acting. There's just something about like this very sort of 70s serious deadpan where there's just a gravitas behind like every single line that I don't think is really present in modern acting so much. Mm -hmm. It makes you believe them up until the point where your brain hears what they're saying. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's a few more of these little pastiche kind of silly flashback moments. There's like the war hospital where Ethel Merman shows up. In her last film role. <laughs> yes. And again, this because I, I saw this movie as a kid, I had no idea who Ethel Merman was. This was my introduction to Ethel Merman as a concept. Oh, wow. And little did I know how important <laughs> she would be become to me. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, we've also got the, the, the transplant patient en route who keeps on getting her IV knocked out. <laughs> Uh, as this nice stewardess like sings and plays a guitar. Uh, and, and of course, we have the, uh, the slightly racist bit where uh, they are selling Tupperware and teaching basketball to indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, just want to throw all of these out there in case anybody had any comments on any of these sort of little bits. It is funny how like sprawling these flashbacks are. It's like, oh, yeah, there was my time yeah. in the service. And then it's like, I don't know, he lives out the plot of the English patient or something. Like, there's just so many different things that they're up to in the past until, I guess, very recently. And it's like, what, why, what, where did this come from? I, I don't even know exactly what they're even parodying at this point anymore, other than just right. they had an idea for a scene where, yeah, he's trying to teach some people in Africa basketball and they're just inherently good at it. That bit is one of the bits that feels the most Kentucky Fried movie, both for better uh, and for worse. Yeah. But like the whole idea of dancing around the boundaries of good taste was a big part of like what they were trying to do as Kentucky Fried mm-hmm. Theater. And this is carrying that tradition through. What's weird, though, is that it feels out of place in this movie more than anything else. Yeah, I think it veers too far away from the war Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like the flashbacks go. It's just like now they're in Africa for some reason. Right. Because we had to fill another couple minutes because the Saturday Night Fever parody didn't go on for 11 minutes. Yeah, we needed a third suicide (laughs) attempt, right? So Because we had the old lady hanging herself. We had uh, James Hong in one of his 1,000 credits uh, committing suicide. Oh my God, that was James himself. And, and then and the then third guy is a uh, white guy who is a dressed former as a member Sikh, of, yeah. dressed as a Sikh guy in full brown face. There's some issues with this yeah. movie from time yeah, to time, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a product of its time. 
I do and think that the self-immolating part is the funniest of the three gags, right? Yes, Someone just correct. pouring more and more gasoline on himself and he's just about to strike the match. Well, it is interesting because, you know, the the two the two black men in the film that speak jive, yes. right? Like the, and that is sort of a, a recurring bit throughout the whole thing. It's actually really just an excuse of like to have a white woman attempt to speak. Yeah, well, not just, not, a, not white just a white woman, the yeah. mom from Leave it to Beaver. Right. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, shit. Barbara Billingsley. Yeah. Yep. Getting Barbara Billingsley yep. specifically to say just hang loose blood was, I think, the entire purpose of that joke. But you can, t- yes. yeah, I think, I think you can tell that they're trying to do sort of racialized humor, but then also trying to pare it back so that it's not, they're trying to make it inoffensive. They don't succeed entirely. No, no. I, especially the basketball stuff. That is definitely the 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 vibration that they are going for. They're just trying yeah. to do sort of a silly joke. And to sort of bring in just another genre that was popular at the time. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. the black exploitation mm-hmm. stuff, right? It is sort of like they're trying to throw every kind of movie and every just wild like right. comedic thought into the same thing. I don't recall and I wasn't paying attention to it at the time, but what was the contemporary yeah. reaction yeah, to that? Sure. You know, not looking at it from 2024, but what was the reaction in 1980 or 81 when the movie came out and th- how did people feel yeah, about I, it Yeah, I feel like it, as opposed to Kentucky Fried Movie, which was pretty controversial, I don't think that anybody was especially up in arms about any of this stuff in Airplane. I mean, ultimately, like, a white guy teaches a bunch of African people who have never seen a basketball before how to play basketball, quote unquote, and they're all naturally good at it. It's a lazy joke. I don't know that it's like offensive. Exactly. Like it's 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 not like it's not a, yeah, it's not a disgusting it's, joke. Yeah, no, it's just it's just like it's lazy. And the Tupperware you know? joke is more a joke about Tupperware than anything. Correct. It's like, oh, yeah, we were bringing all of these life saving whatever. And then it's just a Tupperware party like which is actually kind of a funny commentary on like NGO culture. Exactly. And like anyway, just little bits and pieces that I wanted to talk about that are ultimately not particularly salient to the plot of the film because the plot the of the plot film doesn't matter. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Any, it doesn't matter either, but it does give us an excuse to meet Leslie Nielsen's character, Dr. Rumack. Now, yeah. again, we talked about how up until this point, Leslie Nielsen, known as a dramatic leading man. And Bernie, did you were you like following Leslie Nielsen up until this point? Had you seen the other stuff he was in at all? This was the first time I became aware of Leslie Nielsen. So in my yeah. mind, he's always yeah. been. So uh, I would actually actor. not say he was really a leading man. I mean, he okay. was in Forbidden Planet, but he moved over to TV. And so he was a guy who would show up on Mannix or Route 66 Got or uh, Night Gallery or something. So one of those guys who shows up and you're like, oh, hey, it's yeah, that Yeah, he shows up like and he's kinda... like a general or yeah, like yeah, yeah. the a detective or something. Yeah. I think it's easily the most memorable thing about this movie. It really set him up, I think, for the Naked Gun movies and even more so yeah. for yes. Police Squad, which was a summer fill-in show that I thought was one of the funniest TV shows I had ever seen. I loved Police mm. Squad and how they, again, color. played yeah. around with genres. Yes, in color. <laughs> but how they played around with all the, the tropes of different things, primi- primarily from older TV shows and mm-hmm. films, not contemporary, but I think his name was Johnny, the, the shoeshine boy and how that was something yeah. that you would have seen in 40s movies and things yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, Police Squad is a particular obsession of Josh's as well. That's right. I, I think I think <laughs> and it's true. Like, it's fun that they got to make some naked gun movies after that. They're not as good as Police Squad. 
Which I think I think also because they had Joe Dante with them, I think he added a a sort of Looney Tunes capacity to all of that. And the the fast pace and the fact that it's just going to be, you know, 25 minutes at most really sells everything. Mm -hmm. And I just can't get enough of those freeze frame jokes at the end of every episode of Police Squad. It almost feels like he's a wind up doll for the id of the directors of this movie that they've just sort of unleashed upon the script. And again, just talking about the complexity of putting these scenes together. This one, they're not doing anything special with the camera or anything. Well, uh, except at the very end. But like... This whole scene where he's explaining the symptoms, this very famous scene, is all done in one single take. And so it starts with him lining everything up, right? And as he's lining it up, you see Captain Over slowly experiencing each symptom in real time. It's very stagey, mm-hmm. right? It's it's something that right. they, they figured out how to time perfectly. You, you, you can't use an editor to time it. It has to happen right there. And then, of course, it ends with the plane about to crash because he keels over on the stick and starts sending it into a nosedive. The class of delivery of it and just the the expertise of both of these or all three of these dramatic actors in this scene, it's just exactly what it needs to be and it must have taken an incredible amount of work to get it done right. It would be so hard for me as an actor to ignore all of that happening, like right in my peripheral <laughs> yeah. vision while yeah. I'm just trying to list these symptoms <laughs> and this man is giving this incredible <laughs> comedic performance like mere inches from me. When he spits up uh, like half, like, I think it's like the eight or ninth symptom that he's yeah, listed. So he has to have that. Goes, he's been holding that in the whole take. The whole scene! Yeah. Yes, just some like lukewarm oatmeal. I don't know if you've ever had to do any vomiting scenes. I've had to do my fair share in the day. Mm. I don't like oatmeal mm-hmm. either. Yeah, does that, just... d- d- how many vomiting scenes have you had to do in your uh, traffic reporting career? <laughs> <laughs> Zero. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maintain that record. It's not worth it. <laughs> we find out that there were two meal options on this plane for the in-flight dinner, right? Fish and steak. Everybody who ate fish has already gotten or is going to get sick. This, of course, includes the pilots. And uh, once Captain Over is down for the count, Elaine, our flight attendant, calls flight control. This is Elaine Dickinson. I'm the stewardess. Captain Over's passed out on the floor and we've lost the co-pilot. Navigator 2, we're in terrible trouble. Over. Roger, Elaine. Roger, I read you. This is Steve McCroskey at Chicago Air Control. Back to you in a minute. Hold all takeoffs. I don't want another plane in the air. And the 508 reports, bring it straight in. Yes, sir. Put out a general bulletin to suspend all meal service on flights out of Los Angeles. Tell all dispatchers to remain at the post. It's going to be a long night. How about some coffee, Johnny? No, thanks. I want the weather on every landing field this side of the line, no matter what the size. You understand? Any place, any place where there's a chance to land that plane. Stan, go upstairs to the tower and get a runway diagram. Terry, check down the field for emergency equipment. Chief, we got fog right down to the deck, every place east of the Rockies. There's no possible place they can land. They'll have to come through to Chicago. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. I want the best available man on this. The man who knows that plane inside and out and won't crack under pressure. How about Mr. Rogers? <laughs> <laughs> Brian briefly enters the movie. Again, these are dramatic actors. They're TV actors. They're people you can give them just a lot of dialogue, a lot of really right. dry stuff that doesn't really mean anything, and they can just deliver it. And that's what you need for this right. scene. This is Lloyd Bridges of the famous Bridges family, you know, Jeff and others. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, he's their dad. 
Oh, there's a lot of bridges out there. Well, what's incredible about this movie also is that they just keep setting up dishes to spin. Like you yeah. think at a yeah. certain point they're going to run out of bits, so they're going to stop setting up like ongoing bits. But no, they just keep adding dishes. Yeah. And we got that Mr. Rogers line at the end. And that is Steve Stucker. Ugh. So we got Zucker, Zucker and Stucker now, who is another uh, Kentucky Fried <laughs> Theater guy. Absolute gem. Uh, by all Truly, accounts, yeah. when we lost him far too soon uh, to AIDS. Yeah. yeah, he here he is breaking the rules, right? Everyone else mm-hmm. delivers everything as clean and as dramatic and as straight-faced as possible. He comes in, goofy face, goofy voice, very physical, prancing ad-libbing around, everything, mincing. Uh, yeah. Well, not ad-libbing, though. Mm. He is... They gave him the script and he wrote his own lines. So he's not necessarily surprising the actors with what he's going to say, but they are all his words. Again, Stephen Stucker, I had Mm -hmm. never seen that I can recall before this this film. But Lloyd Bridges was certainly familiar from the various TV dramas. Were you a Sea Hunt fan? No, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Hate snorkels as a rule, really. (laughs) And, you know, Steve, you know, keep in mind, this is, I believe, before... The AIDS crisis began, and I guess I was still pretty naive, you know, because I think of Paul Lynn from Bewitched. A favorite subject of ours on yes, this show. Actually, <laughs> but actors who were, were playing, in a yeah, sense, yeah. gay characters that in my, you know, my early viewing of this, I think it probably went over, well, Paul Lynn certainly went over mm-hmm. my head when I was watching Bewitched, and I'm not sure how I reacted to, to Steven Stucker, but it was obviously unspoken. And, and how that would have upset some people in the audience back in yeah. 1980. This is so interesting to me that we have a visibly queer character who exists as an agent of chaos in this world, yeah. right? Very right. deliberately yeah. so. <laughs> and in a way that makes it so much better and so much more fun. And the fact that he is really being, I think in many ways, like unabashedly himself, right? Yeah. In in a world where mm-hmm. I think all of these other people are segmented into the little boxes of, of you know, gender yeah. and uh, the performance that is required of them in this context, right? I, I find that fascinating and sort of a bizarrely radical thing coming from ZAZ, who, as we've talked about, are pretty conservative yeah. overall uh, in their outlook and in politics. Well, and it's interesting because there are some jokes that are aimed squarely at conservatives here, you know, in 1980, Ronald Reagan you know, being president at the very right. beginning of all that. Like they, someone makes a joke, I haven't felt this bad since I saw that Ronald Reagan movie. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, but you can get away with that again because it's a joke about Reagan as an actor and everyone knew that, yeah, he kind of sucks. And then they do the win one for the Gipper bit towards the right. end of the film. Um, there's also a little joke, I don't know if anyone caught it, where uh, they're talking about how bad it is. And they said, I haven't seen something like this since the Anita Bryant concert. And Anita Bryant was this mm-hmm. this virulently homophobic singer who did advertising for Florida Oranges uh, until she got a pie right. in her face from a, a radical gay activist. And then everyone was like, why did a pie get thrown into her face? And then it turned out that that's when sort of the mainstream culture found out about her her evangelical organizational ties and her her vicious homophobia. So it's yeah. interesting to see those little jokes in there and to see Stucker, who, you know, he's not necessarily playing a gay character as much as like that's just that's just him he's he's right not someone who can really butch it up Mm -hmm. he's going to deliver those lines that way because that's how he talks that's who he is 
And for a lot of people, yeah, I think it's just going to go over their heads. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that this is a point in the movie where you need that sort of injection of energy in order to, like, sustain the rest of it. Because if it were deadpan all the way through, if every single character were mm. exactly like that, I don't necessarily know if it would feel as quick as it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, bring without, him in because he's in. not there from the beginning either, right? Yeah, you're keeping yeah. from getting too monotonous by throwing him in in that third act. You know, I was thinking as we were... You were talking a little bit about him. I can't imagine them having had a trans character back in 1980. Yeah, right. You know, they, you know, maybe had a, would have a drag character or something like that, but not a, a trans yeah, character. And, and I then. feel like if there had been a drag character, it would have been played entirely for laughs and not in the fun way. I think that's part of why the character of Johnny is so striking to me. It, it's their old friend yeah. who they probably considered to be the funniest guy in their group. Right. Um, being able to make his own jokes here and and knocking every single one out of the park. Yes. Basically a demon. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> So in order to land this plane right now that the two pilots are out of commission and the navigator, whatever, the navigator, whatever he does, <laughs> we're going to have to figure out a way to land this plane. Yeah. Right. The big matter here is, of course, that no one can fly this plane. But there right. is one man who might be able to fly the plane. Might be able to. And so uh, the doctor has a heart to heart with Elaine. Well, Janet, you're a member of this crew. Can you face some unpleasant facts? I think so. All right. Unless I can get all these people to a hospital quickly, I can't even be sure of saving their lives. I don't understand. What is it? Well, something toxic. You're so Some kind of bacteria poison. How did it Wait, hold there? on. This is... This is a ways. That's not important. What is important is these people need hospital facilities. Stimulants, intravenous treatment for shock. <laughs> the pilots? How are we going to land? Is there anybody else on board who can land this plane? There's no one on board from the airline. I don't know about anybody else. How many passengers are there? 38. I think you ought to know what our chances are. The life of everybody aboard depends killer. on just one thing. <laughs> Finding someone back there who not only can fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. Sorry, that's not quite right. Um, Elaine, you're a member of this crew. There Can we you go. face some unpleasant facts? No. All right. <laughs> Unless I get all those people to a hospital quickly, I can't even be sure of saving their lives. Now, is there anyone on board who can land this plane? No, no one I know of. I think you ought to know what our chances are. The life of everyone on board depends upon just one thing. Finding someone back there who can not only fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. They sell it a lot better in an airplane. They really do. <laughs> what a profound waste of everyone's time, Josh. How dare you? <laughs> the stewardess said both pilots. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Doctor, I've checked everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? I flew single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. It's It's an an entirely entirely different different kind of flying. There we go. To have that right next to the first Don't Call Me Shirley is unbelievable. What a run. (laughs) You do start to get diminishing returns on the gags. Not this one, because this is one of the best quotes in the whole movie. But the silliness is so relentless, and you're seeing different versions of the same kind of thing over and over and over again. But this is also a problem with uh, airport where it's like, okay, we get it. Land the fucking plane, you know, 
And, right. and airport has almost no jokes except for Helen Hayes. <laughs> right. And every time Helen Hayes is on, you're like, oh, thank God. A part of the movie that's not good still, but like yes. still kind of enjoyable. She saves it. Yeah. yeah. There's a point where Rex Kramer, who is sort of the, the pilot that is in charge of of a guiding striker to, uh, to guide the plane to the ground. He is getting ready in his home while a guy is being mauled by his yeah. dog mm-hmm. in the background. And it you're made to think that he's looking in a mirror and adjusting his shirt, but then he walks fully through yeah. the mirror and it's just <laughs> been a doorway this whole time. And his wife looks like, where did the mirror go? Um, and as he's driving to, uh, uh, to the air traffic control center, uh, the the green screen around the him, rear I, projection. I, I it's rear projection. Screen. Yeah, it's the rear projector behind him. It's just going. Yeah, nuts. it's like first it's it's like way wrong. It's like it's like on the bottom of the car, but it's showing like above right. the car. You know, the, so that makes them look like they're tiny. And then they hit a bicyclist. Yeah, he, he hits a guy. And then it's yeah. just zigzagging back and forth. <laughs> and then they're driving away from guys on horseback. Yeah, they're like driving away from the yeah. cavalry from some old stock footage <laughs> that they found. There's not so a good. whole lot of like. <laughs> meta jokes in airplane and i think that's part of why it works so well Mm. is because they knew they had to limit that you can't just make you can't just be olsen and johnson and make the whole movie into hell's a poppin even though you're imitating the the pacing and insanity of hell's a poppin you can't just be making every joke about how this is a movie uh and, and i feel like as we get to the back half they start relying on that a little bit more and more uh because then they start having people appear from the sky well, they, they, <laughs> like, they're using just, yeah. the tools of making movies by yeah having someone to just appear upside down or something like that but they're not making jokes about it being a movie ab- about rear projection no. or yeah this is not blazing saddles yeah, yeah. remember uh cap and over airline pilot with some unfortunate <laughs> predilections sure yeah yeah well it turns out that his wife is uh having an affair uh and i think the best way that we can cover this affair is to return Mm -hmm. to a famous segment oh i'm sorry i'm sorry what's that aj's horse corner so we cut to a scene (laughs) now where the wife is in bed and she wakes up and there's also a horse Mm -hmm. in the bed with her Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm And she tells the horse, you can leave through the back door and that there's juice in the fridge. And here's what I'm going to say about this horse. First of yep. all, this horse is played by a it's horse. Live. It's a live yep. horse. Name, they had to build a, a gigantic bed That's for so this. For this horse, the horse's name is Windy, which everyone knows it's Windy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This horse looks cozy as fuck. Mm. This, this horse is entering... Her horseshoe, 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 Mimi era, in a huge way. This is the kind of horse that just got into a big fight with her <laughs> husband. My finger over the is button. pretending to sleep, but can't because she feels guilty about saying the wrong thing. Mm. She knows that it would be the easiest thing in the world to just roll over and apologize, but she can't bring herself to do it. She pulls the sheets up around her face, clinging onto them for. Some semblance yeah. of normalcy, but finds none. Jay, where are you going with this? This isn't something they just come <laughs> back from. Christ. The air has shifted forever. Okay. The long simmering tensions finally given voice in a name, and it terrifies her. To be oh lying in God. bed next to someone, but feels so completely alone. It's hell. She feels him shift and move, his hand tentatively touching her face. Are you okay? He asks. She turns to face him and says... This has been AJ's Horse Corner. Ooh, yeah. AJ's Horse Corner. 
I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we got to have this esteemed guest hear you just going on about this fucking horse for like two minutes. Thank you, AJ. <laughs> One of the best playwrights in New York, everybody. Have you done any episodes about Mr. Ed or uh, the Godfather no, scene? Yeah. <laughs> No, this horse is alive. We have to be very clear. Yes. This horse yeah, is alive. You have not to just see, a horse it's, head. It's so, <laughs> which would it be an entirely different Yeah, because otherwise people will just think it's the Godfather scene. You have to make sure the horse moves yes. in order for the gag to work, which is an insane conversation to have. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Imagine? It, especially when you were. No, no, this works for me on many levels. Right. I know it works for you. <laughs> this isn't about you, AJ. <laughs> I would really rather it was never about you again. <laughs> Um, they're gonna get through it they're gonna be okay my favorite bit from sort of this piece before they successfully managed to you know yeah. land the plane is the yeah. news broadcasts that go over the waves yeah. where there's like this montage of like newspaper headlines yeah. and then guys on the news there's this broadcast and this is also a Kentucky Fried movie reference okay. uh, where this guy comes out on what is I guess a point counterpoint which was a like, real show, show. A real show yeah. Yeah. yeah at the end of 60 minutes yep, yep. Uh, and uh, he, he has this take on the situation. This is clip 12. Shane, they bought their tickets. They knew what they were getting into. I say, let them crash. Uh, I, I also want to say about Kramer, about Mr. Kramer, who's coming in to, to help guide this plane down. That's Robert mm. Stack. That's yeah. Mr. Unsolved Mysteries himself. And, you know, this is something that he did after doing Airplane. But like this is speaking to, again, they're they're looking for gravity. They're looking for excellent voiceover artists. They're looking for someone who just brings nothing but seriousness to what he's doing and then just layering the ridiculous things on top of him, like a pair of sunglasses on a pair of sunglasses on Robert Stack. Yes. <laughs> they actually said that they would not do the movie without him. Wow. Like, really? They, they sent his agent the script and said, we we really want him to do this role. And the agent said, uh, do you have any money? And they said, no. And the agent said, come back when you have money. <laughs> and he took some convincing. Yeah. But he, he, he also uh, apparently struggled a lot with the not having a motivation thing sure. for yeah. his character. But eventually really tapped into the vibe of what this movie was about uh again i think it came the easiest to leslie nielsen mm -hmm. like i feel like he from day one knew what this was and knew leslie how to nielsen it, but... was always like a really ridiculous guy like he he for many years even before airplane uh had this little electronic device that played a little fart sound yeah, his, and his he, fart, had a, he had a remote machine, control yeah. for it so like if someone came into the room he'd like put it somewhere in the room and then hit the fart button and blame it on somebody else like he was waiting for this this was the opportunity yes. of a lifetime his gravestone says let her rip <laughs> he was just trapped Bernie. doing like route 66 and, and and forbidden planet for like 30 years and then he was finally right. able to break out as this absolute clown that he is and, and i guess this is also the part in the movie where they really lean the most into like the machismo of it right mm -hmm. where they're like we're sure. big strong flight control guys yeah. you know we're gonna make it all happen also the way that when they're up in the flight control tower pre preparing to like see the plane come into land 
the whole thing is staged like they're in a war movie yeah. waiting for the enemy to attack. Which also effectively yeah. increases the, the dramatic tension of yes. those scenes. You you got you've yeah, got oh the yeah. glue sniffing, you've got the the paranoia, no, don't turn on the lights just yet. That's exactly what they're expecting. Exactly and all of that expecting. actually does ratchet this up far better than Zero Hour did. But again, within all of that, Johnny exists in there as the chaos agent, yeah. right? Bad news. Fog is getting thicker. And Leon's getting larger. Yeah, it's, it's just so much of Johnny is is me and is my spirit. Like I just absorbed I mean, this character also. as a child, sure. and and I was like, yes, you could make a hat or a brooch or a pterodactyl out of yeah. so many things. <laughs> the way that he types too, it's yeah. it's all oh, just all magic. It's like he's attacking every <laughs> single key. It's also like like they're dancing. His fingers are yes. dancing while also horribly maiming those keys. It's violent. Yep. There are things that people who are younger may, may have gone over their heads mm-hmm. in terms of things. And and also how things change. Yeah. You know, for instance, the beginning scene where Ted drives the taxi to the airport and gets out and says, I'll be right, right. back. The meter. Puts the flag down. The guy who's sitting in the back seat is a guy by the name of Howard Jarvis, who was in the news back then because he had put forth a referendum in in California for taxes. So he, that was that was his his thing, and he just waits there. And another thing that I, I picked up on was just you know all the airlines when you, yeah. you're seeing the outside of the airport, Eastern, TWA, TWA, these airlines yeah. that no longer exist, smoking right. sections on airplanes yep. that. You know, no. What, what do you mean? Have a smoking section on it? That's, that's wild to me. Or, or having right. yeah, people just sort of freely going in and out of the cockpit. You know, the pilot yeah. leaves and he's just walking around in the back. And, and even the, the the job title, stewardess, which mm-hmm. you know back then everybody was female right. who was a flight attendant. They didn't right. call them flight attendants; they called them stewardesses. You know, so all these little things. And the only product placement I noticed was I think Coke and Tab. Mm-hmm. Oh, and in Miller High Life. There were bottles of Miller High oh, yes, Life. Yes, yes. That's but right. it was yes, fun yes, seeing yes. Tab. And you're like, I know exactly <laughs> what I am in time. It was so nice being able to just have free reign in the airport. Yeah. You know, when I, my first flight, there was absolutely no security that you went to. Wow. You know, you, you got your ticket and you walked right onto the plane. Right. The, you know, so it wasn't even the magnetometer that they show in that one scene mm-hmm. where the guy has to take off his metal arm mm-hmm. and his metal right, leg right. Um, right. to go through. Not even that existed. But obviously before 9-11, you had a pared down type of security that was was in place before the TSA yeah. was created. So, sure. you know, I, I certainly miss the innocence of those things. But on the other hand, I also remember at that time, there would be at least one or two commercial plane crashes right. that happened every yeah. year. Mm. And you know, you don't hear about those for the most part. Anymore. Although Boeing Even, is trying to trying its best to bring it back. Trying to bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's new Coke. It's coming back. <laughs> also, speaking of drinks, wanted to bring up mm. one little gag uh, that happens towards the beginning of the movie with a husband and wife on the plane, and the husband gets a second cup of coffee, and the wife has this oh, yes. voiceover that says, "Oh, he never gets a second cup of coffee at home." Right. That was a famous ad campaign throughout the 70s for many years for Ubon coffee. Yeah. And that the same actress was in the commercial. It's actually her. That's they it. actually got the actress right. from the commercial to be in airplane. When they start landing, I did pull a third clip here hmm. of the doctor. Let me see if we can just roll that real quick. I just want to tell you both good luck. I'll keep your son with me. 
Thank you. Wait, that's not the line. That, that, that's not the line. Hold on. No! I just want to tell you both good luck. We're all counting on you. There we Gotta go. Gotta say. He can't keep getting away with it. <laughs> Gotta say, the original line is funnier. I'll keep your son with me. <laughs> I know! <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> they probably tried it, right? But him saying it three times made him a little bit too close. Well, they don't to have Captain a son Over. in airplane. There's a son in right. zero hour. Oh, because sure, they're Canadian sure. in zero hour and they have kids earlier. <laughs> That's just how it is. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's, sure. it's just a known fact. But yeah, the uh the plane begins its final descent after that. Just want to say good luck, we're all counting on yeah. you, which Rule uh -huh. of three, yeah. that repeats three times, once during the flight and once after they've already landed. We've talked about this from so many angles now, and I guess a question, here's a question that I have just in general. Comedy is this weird thing, right? It, it, it tends to not age well, but I think it's fair to say that in many ways, this movie has. Yeah. I mean, how do we feel that this movie has held up 44 years after its initial release. It's crazy, oh. especially considering how much of it is like references and using actors that you know from a certain context. There's something about just the musicality of it, too. You just for me, it's almost like it's not even a funny movie anymore. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is the next line that comes because mm -hmm. I have seen it so many times. And if it's ever on, I'll just keep watching it. Like I say, I watched it today and it was the first time I've seen it in years. So there was. Oh, yeah. You know, I hadn't seen it. It reminded me of things that I had forgotten. But it also was enough of I'm really paying close attention and I'm using the pause button to <laughs> see things that I probably missed in earlier versions of it. There are so many jokes in this that land so well. I mean, pun intended, uh, that like really do land the mm -hmm. plane that I feel like it is so worth still revisiting. I, I think Bill uh, Bill Hader talked about watching this movie and how there was like when he was a kid he loved you know and don't call me Shirley and all that but now he just loves fucking Kramer ranting about municipal bonds <laughs> it's like you'll be hitting the head with a hammer of course that never happens you know like that's sort of like forget that Ted what the hell am I talking about <laughs> what am I talking about yeah I know like like you you gravitate onto the different levels of the comedy the older you get and like and revisiting it there's just there's so much gold here like you understand why people consider this like the funniest movie of all time and that so many different kinds of people with so many different kinds of comedic sensibilities can all find something mm -hmm. in this movie that they're like, that's my sense of yeah. humor. And I think this the time I watched it this time was the first time I was really paying attention to how different things are now compared with then. Like people, the men were all wearing suits yeah. on the plane, which sure. you never see anybody <laughs> no. wearing a suit anymore on a plane. You know, little things like that. Even little things like the credit card machine when they were yeah. at the airport yeah. and he put the old credit card machine up to take the for, physical for, embossing. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I did feel like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone 2 Lost in New York when I saw him use the credit card and go, oh, wow, it works. <laughs> I, I just got a new debit card this last weekend and it no longer has the raised numbers on it. Ooh. And I'm sort of kind of oh. upset. <laughs> I was going to say, and just from a personal perspective, when I was in college, I remember working at a radio shack mm. and. We would use those and the way we would find out if the credit card was valid, there was a book that came out like every week and you'd have to look at this two point type to, to, to see the credit card numbers and make sure that it wasn't one of the ones that was on the list of a stolen oh, credit card. Wow. Wow. So it was a compendium of every credit card number 
in circulation of, of every every bad well, credit everyone, card number. Everyone, every wow. bad credit card. So, yeah. Well, did did slam and tab in the back of that radio shack help or hurt with finding the false credit cards? I, I feel like this is as good of an opportunity as any, Bernie, to say thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I mean, this this has Truly. been unbelievably fun. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. If folks want to see what it is that you're up to, what should they do? If you type my name, I am the only Bernie Wagon Blast as far as I know in the world. So, <laughs> And that's Wagon with an E, not an O. So <laughs> if you do that, you'll find me wherever. You know, I'm on places like TikTok and Instagram, but very little involvement there. You are um, much more on TikTok than any of us are, except maybe Josh. No, I'm, I'm very like, on TikTok, actually. <laughs> jo- jo- Josh is our Gen Z yeah, member that's right. of the podcast, so he has to be tapped into that. And now I'm mainly on TikTok just to see what other people are doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The main Fair. reason that I'm there. And maybe once in a while to respond to, to something that somebody has done. But um, uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> also, I will say I, I did listen to a couple episodes of your podcasts, and... Um, if you are not super into like what is going on in the world of transport, uh, it, it might not be up your alley. But let me tell you if something. Considering the fans that we have, they, they are if, into if transport. If you like thinking about, you know, highways and <laughs> the ways that we can build better infrastructure and wildlife crossings over highways <laughs> and uh, how block grants can be applied to uh, fund more uh, sustainable and equitable development of our logistical resources. Boy, howdy, have I got some podcasts for you. So <laughs> check that out. It's all in the show notes. We'll get them all linked. Um, yep. And yeah, uh, th- thank you again for, for for spending some time with us. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. It's been fun. It's, I've had a lot of fun. Uh, I should also just take a ch- chance here to say if you've been enjoying our show, we do have a Patreon. That's right. Uh, five bucks a month gets you access to our whole back catalog plus occasional Bobus episodes, as well as fancy movie time with Brian and AJ, where they talk about fancy movies. Movies so, that are uh, not like this one at all. <laughs> no, not, not, not even a little bit. Uh, so patreon.com slash worst of all is where you'll find that. And uh, AJ, do you want to take us home? Yeah. So the thing I found most striking about watching Airplane is that this is just not a style of comedy that's made too much anymore. As Brian mentioned, Angie Tribeca is certainly playing in the same sort of field, but this kind of movie has really gone out of style. Back in the day, back when it was being made, when they initially pitched this project, it was something that no one had really ever seen before, and people didn't really know if it would work at all i mean every actor who read it was like what is this and like uh, some of the actors who did it ended up throwing the script across the room the first time they read it and saying this is garbage but clearly they were proven wrong the movie went on to be a huge success it's a movie we're still talking about 40 years later and i think 44 years later and i think the lesson that we can draw from this is that if you want to make a great comedy all you have to do is give us something completely different altogether. Give us give something, us something completely, completely different. different. <laughs> I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. See you next week. <laughs>